I'm gonna show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just wanna say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello, and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Welcome to another episode. Today, this is part three, is what I'm calling it, on my series on Steve Jobs. This is based on a new book that just came out. It's called Make Something Wonderful, Steve Jobs in His Own Words. And what this is, is there's an organization called the Steve Jobs Archive. I think it's set up by his widow, but it's essentially committed to helping archive historical information about Steve Jobs and what he did during his life. And so they released a book that is him in his own words. It's all the interviews that they could find, a bunch of emails that he wrote, speeches that he gave. It's just compiling a bunch of times when Steve Jobs spoke and putting it all in one book. It's an amazing book. I think it's a great resource. It's, it's amazing that they have done this. It's really important for history and it's a great book for learning and for self-development. I think it's a great handbook on leadership. It's applicable across all sorts of fields. I think even if you're not in entrepreneurship or technology necessarily, and it's a testament to the sheer willpower that Steve Jobs possessed. And one of the things that comes across super clearly in it that I was amazed by is it's a masterclass in persuasion. Steve Jobs was such a good communicator. That's one of the things that comes through in this book really clearly. And so I had a lot of takeaways in terms of how to communicate, how to tell stories, how to get my message across more effectively and more clearly. So I'm just going to run through it and give some of my favorite quotes and takeaways from this book. It's very timely, I think. Apple just announced their new Vision Pro device yesterday, which I thought was exciting. It's supposed to be revolutionary. We'll see. But I think Apple's on a lot of people's minds. It looks like they are still innovating. This looks like a very innovative device. So it's cool to see his legacy continuing to go forward now a decade after his death. So hope you enjoy it. Before we get into it, I want to mention one other podcast that if you like this one, I think you will love. It's called Founders. It's by my friend David Senra. It's a lot like how to take over the world, but David is an entrepreneur and his show is more focused on entrepreneurship and biographies of famous and very successful entrepreneurs in the past. And it's really amazing. If you're a founder or aspire to be a founder, you've got to listen to it. I mean, it's taken over the community of founders. So if you're a founder and you're not already listening to it, you should feel left out. You're about the only one. I'd recommend, actually, this week's episode was really great. It's on David Ogilvie, one of the greatest advertisers in all of history. I'd also recommend episode 296 on Bernard Arnault, who is one of, if not the, I think right now he is the wealthiest person in the world, someone I didn't know a whole lot about and is a really interesting character. David does a great job of bringing him to life and giving you some lessons that you can learn from this guy who's an absolute killer, even though he's working in the luxury business, not something I expected, but that's a great episode. Uh, one of the other ones I'd recommend is episode 264 about Edwin Land. So Edwin Land is the entrepreneur who was... Steve Jobs' biggest inspiration. So he really looked up to him. He started Polaroid. And this, again, is someone who is probably understudied and isn't as well known as he should be. So David's podcast is amazing. Again, it's Founders, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of ways to be as a person. And some people express their deep appreciation in different ways. But one of the ways that I believe people express their appreciation to the rest of humanity is to make something wonderful and put it out there. And you never meet the people, you never shake their hands, you never hear their story or tell yours. But somehow, in the act of making something with a great deal of care and love, something's transmitted there. 
and it's a way of expressing to the rest of our species our deep appreciation. So we need to be true to who we are and remember what's really important to us. That is the first quote that is given at the beginning of this book, Make Something Wonderful. And I think it does a good job of setting the tone. I'll be honest, I found so much of this book really interesting and compelling that I had a tough time cutting it down to the things that I think will be interesting and actionable for you. So I've split it into different categories. And so I'll start with the first one, which is education and creating the conditions for genius to thrive. Steve Jobs is not someone who loved to reflect on his own life or his own psychology. And so he didn't talk a ton about his early life and what formed him and his education, his growing up, things like that. And so as a result, I think sometimes in his biographies, that part can be a little bit thin. And also biographers can try and make more out of things than Steve Jobs himself made out of them. So it was really interesting to hear him talk about his own childhood and what he thought about it. I've always contended that living in California in the late 19th or basically any time in the 20th century is essentially one of the best places ever in all of history to be born. It's there on the frontier. It's settled enough that you've got all the technology and the creature comforts that you could possibly want, but it does have this kind of frontier feeling where anything is possible. You're allowed room to breathe. There's a feeling of freedom and of exploration. I think it was just a really incredible time. And so it's no surprise, it's no accident that this is the place that Silicon Valley pops up and you have a lot of technological innovation. And I think Steve Jobs would agree with that. He talks about how idyllic it was. Here's a quote from the book. He says, Silicon Valley, for the most part at the time, was still orchards, apricot orchards and prune orchards. And it was really paradise. I remember almost every day, the air being crystal clear, where you could see from one end of the valley to the other. It was really the most wonderful place in the world to grow up. And one of the other things that made it wonderful to grow up is he talks about these heath kits, these things that you would buy and they'd ship them to you and you would put together the parts to make a radio. He said, it gave one an understanding of what was inside a finished product and how it worked because it would include a theory of operation. But maybe even more importantly, it gave one the sense that one could build the things that one saw around oneself in the universe. These things were not mysteries anymore. You could look at a television set and you would think, I haven't built one of those, but I could. There's one of those in the Heath kit catalog, and I built two other Heath kits so I could build a television set. And I think that's actually probably the most important thing that you can pass along to a child in their education is that feeling that I can figure out anything because I've figured out some things and demystifying the world around them and helping them realize that they have the ability to craft their surroundings, the way that it was crafted for them by someone else before they came along. One of the other things that I think is really interesting is when Steve talks about his education and I have young kids. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about, but I hated school. I really hated school growing up. So it's interesting to hear how things almost went wrong for him. Here's what he said about his education and school for him growing up. He said, school was pretty hard for me at the beginning. My mother taught me how to read before I got to school. And so when I got there, I really just wanted to do two things. I wanted to read books because I loved reading books and I wanted to go outside and chase butterflies. I encountered authority of a different kind than I had ever encountered before. And I did not like it. And they really almost got me. They came this close to really beating any curiosity out of me. And I think that quote is both interesting and terrifying Listen to that again. They really almost got me. They came this close 
to really beating any curiosity out of me. And so that's just insane to me that we have these places that we essentially acknowledge are prisons. <laughs> and Steve Jobs says that they're basically designed for beating curiosity out of you. And it almost did the same to him. And what would have happened if they had just got that extra little bit and they had managed to do it. They had managed to beat the curiosity out of him. So I, I am a big believer in not sending your kids to traditional schools. I think they're useless. I think they're a prison. That's how I felt when I was in schools. I think it's designed, like Steve Jobs said, to beat the curiosity out of you. I think children just need two to three hours a day of reading and arithmetic and otherwise should be free to explore and be curious. And you see that with Steve, that most of his learning happened outside the classroom with these heat kits, with his friends, with the projects that they were working on. I think the one exception for that is if you're going to put your child in some sort of genius education program, like the Polgars, and uh, then maybe a full day of instruction is okay. But even then, remember that one of Laszlo Polgar's secrets was that his daughters enjoyed chess. It was play for them. He did exert some mild discipline for them sometimes to keep them focused, but that was pretty rare. For the most part, they were self-motivated to study chess because he made it enjoyable for them. And I think, you know, this idea that we should browbeat children for eight hours a day and make them sit still and pay attention is just horrible for children. And I know I'm on a diatribe right now, but it's so scary to me when Steve says they really almost got me like this genius is almost snuffed out at such a young age because of our education system. So I thought that was important to highlight. And, and by the way, Steve Jobs is not alone in this. You know, Da Vinci also just wanted to go outside and chase butterflies. He also felt very constrained by formal education. William Randolph Hearst is another person who felt really stifled by school. I think most geniuses feel this way in highly regimented schools. And I think the ideal form of education is what you find with, you know, Caesar and Alexander the Great, which is private tutors, which allows them flexibility and allows them to have a relationship with someone who can keep pace with them. The thing that kind of pulls him out of it that is the reason they don't end up getting him is he has one teacher who is really helpful. She says, hey, you're a smart kid. If you can figure this stuff out on your own, I'll give you $5 for every workbook you finish at home. And so that ends up being really important for him because he doesn't feel so stifled anymore. He can just work really quickly at home and get through material. He also says, quote, she got me kits for making cameras. I ground my own lens and made a camera. It was really quite wonderful. I think I probably learned more academically in that one year than I've ever learned in my life. He also talks about outside of school that, quote, California had a sense of experimentation about it and a sense of openness about it, a sense of openness and new possibility that I really didn't appreciate till I went to other places. And again, on the topic of doing stuff outside of school, it's interesting. He talks about meeting Waz. He says, quote, I met Waz when I was 13 in a friend of mine's garage. He was, I think, about 18. He moved down the street from a friend of mine named Bill Fernandez, and I was over at Bill's. We were working late one night on a project, and Waz dropped by. So I think it's interesting to think about how many kids today can say the sentence, we were working late one night on a project, and someone dropped by. Every piece of that sentence is missing. Kids a lot of times don't have the freedom anymore. Their parents are monitoring them to stay out late. Kids aren't working on projects because they're so consumed by consumption, by content consumption. There's so much TikTok. There's so many movies, Netflix, whatever. And if they're not consuming stuff, then they're in a program, they're on a sports team, or they're doing an after school you know, class, they're, they're doing something, right? And so just that openness, that freedom, that ability to just go down the street and hang out with your friend and work on a project and wander by yourself, I think was really important 
to the development of Steve Jobs and something that is good for children. And I, th- I think they should be given that kind of freedom as much as possible so that they can really develop their curiosity. Okay, so that was his development. One of the other categories that I highlighted was his communication. Like I said, just an absolute master communicator. The first thing that jumps off the page to you is how good he is at analogy. He's got an analogy for everything. He's got some comparison to make that's going to help you understand what it is he's talking about. So one of them, he says, we make what we think of as the Rolls Royce of personal computers. It's a domesticated computer. People expect blinking lights, but what they find is that it looks like a portable typewriter, which connected to a suitable readout screen is able to display in color. Okay, so that's at the very beginning of his career. And even there, he's just starting to put this connection. It's like a Rolls Royce, okay? It's nice, it's luxurious, and it's domesticated. It's easy to use. A little bit later, he's talking about why he thinks it's so important to design computers to look nice, to have a a nice shell, and to be very presentable. And he says, I think we have a chance with this new computing technology meeting people in the 80s. The fact that computers in society are out on a first date in the 80s. We have a chance to make these things beautiful, and we have a chance to communicate something through the design of the objects themselves. I love that analogy that, hey, here in the 80s, we should make them pretty because computers are on a first date with the public. They're getting together for the first time. And so the way that they appear is going to have an effect on the relationship and their ability to woo the public to their use. Another analogy that he uses, he says, by 86, 87, pick a year, people are going to spend more time interacting with these machines than they do interacting with automobiles today. People are going to be spending two, three hours a day interacting with these machines longer than they spend in the car. So the industrial design, the software design, and how people interact with these things certainly must be given the consideration that we give automobiles today, if not a lot more. So again, it's a good comparison. Again, he's talking about the design. He says, hey, if you're wondering why we spend time on the design of these things, people are going to be spending more time with them than they spend with their cars, which is obviously very prescient, very good prediction. We spend way more time with machines, with computers than we do with cars now. And so he says, why wouldn't we put as much time thinking about their design as we think about the design of an automobile? There's another one I was really impressed by, and it's historical analogy. He was a real student of history, which I don't think I quite understood. But man, this guy really knew his history. And so he would pull out these really interesting historical analogies. Here's one I really liked. He said, It's sort of like in 1844, the telegraph was invented, and it was an amazing breakthrough in communications. And you actually could send messages from New York to San Francisco in an afternoon. And some people talked about putting a telegraph on every desk in America to improve productivity. But it wouldn't have worked. And the reason it wouldn't have worked was because you would have had to learn this whole sequence of strange incantations. Morse code in this case, dots and dashes in this case, to use the telegraph. And it took about 40 hours to learn how to use Morse code. And a majority of people would never have learned how to use Morse code. So fortunately, in the 1870s, Alexander Graham Bell filed the patents for the telephone, another radical breakthrough in communications that performed basically the same function, but people already knew how to use it. The neatest thing about it was that in addition to allowing you to communicate with just words, it allowed you to sing. It allowed you to intone your words with meaning beyond the simple linguistics. We're in that exact same parallel situation today. Some people are saying we need to put an IBM PC on every desk in America to improve productivity, but it won't work. The special incantations you have to learn this time are slash QCs and things like that. 
Most people are not going to learn slash QCs any more than they are going to learn Morse code. And that's what Macintosh is all about. It's the first telephone of our industry. But the neatest thing about it to me is the same as the telephone to the telegraph, Macintosh lets you sing. It lets you use special fonts. It lets you make drawings and pictures or incorporate other people's drawings or pictures into your documents. Even in business, you're seeing five-page memos get compressed down to a one-page memo because there's a picture to express the key concept. And so we're seeing less paper flying around and more quality communication, and it's more fun. And so again, that's like just such an amazing way to help people understand the value of a Macintosh compared to an IBM PC. And so I think Steve Jobs is one of the most masterful users of analogy that I've ever seen. People have been asking me for different episodes. I've actually had a few people within the last week ask me to do an episode on Jesus. And I think this is a a funny comparison is that Jesus was the other great master of analogy. If you go read the New Testament, he was always making these parables is what they're called. But there's essentially analogies to help people understand the concepts that he was talking about. And so if you want to communicate more like Steve Jobs, I think that's one of the top things to take away is you need to, to use analogy to make it more understandable to people. Another category I had here was Steve Jobs on leadership. Steve Jobs, incredible leader, obviously. One of the things he talked about is what is it that a CEO does? And another way I think about that is what is it that a leader does? That's all a CEO is really. And he breaks it down very practically. So here's what he says. What does a CEO do? Quote, number one, recruit. Number two, set an overall direction. And number three, inspire and cajole and persuade. And it's really that simple. You just get the right people. You set the overall direction for them to go in, and then you help them get there. You inspire them, you persuade them, and you cajole them, as he says. He spends a long time talking about the first of those tasks, so that is recruiting, getting the right people. He says there are no shortcuts around quality, and quality starts with people. I spend 20% of my time recruiting, even now. I spend a day a week helping people recruit. It's one of the most important things you can do. And so that's something that you hear over and over. Steve Jobs is certainly not the first person to realize this and not the last. Other people have talked about this, but I do think it's interesting that he put such a heavy emphasis on it. One of the things he emphasized was that he wanted people who were smarter than him. And he said, we don't hire people so that I can tell them what to do. We hire smart people so that they can tell us what to do. And so he believed that once you get smart people in the building, you don't have to manage them so closely that's the purpose of having smart people is so that they know what to do and they're more autonomous. Uh, He talked about what it takes to find those smart people. uh, And I thought his interview process was really interesting because he placed such an emphasis on it over time. He realized what were the most important techniques to find out who was really smart and who's going to thrive Apple. And he had one technique that I'll say is, is controversial. That's not what I would have thought of, but is really interesting. He says, Over time, my digging in during an interview, it gets more precise. For example, many times in an interview, I will purposefully upset someone. I'll criticize their prior work. I'll do my homework, find out what they worked on, and say, gosh, that really turned out to be a bomb. That really turned out to be a bozo product. Why did you work on that? The worst thing that someone can do in an interview is to agree with me and knuckle under. What I look for is for someone to come right back and say, you're dead wrong, and here's why. I want to see what people are like under pressure. I want to see if they just fold or if they have firm conviction, belief, and pride in what they did. It's also good every once in a while to really piss someone off in an interview to see how they react. Because if your company is a meritocracy of ideas with passionate people, you have a company with a lot of arguments. 
If people can't stand up and argue well under pressure, they may not do well in such an environment. I want to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. We're talking about recruiting and why getting the smartest, the best people is so important. That's exactly what this sponsor does. It's UpsideJobs.io and UpsideJobs helps you find top technical talent. So if you're searching for AI researchers, software engineers, or machine learning experts, join your team and you need the top talent in the market, you need A players, then this is the place to go. You know, when you get to these top levels and you're looking for really talented people, they're often not applying for open jobs because they've got jobs, they're in high demand. And so you have to go out and find them. And this is a place to go where you can seek out and help you find that top talent that if you're working on great, really important, really great projects, you're going to need. They have worked with top tech companies, YC-backed startups, and even MBA teams to help them fill their talent pipeline. So if you need top talent, go visit UpsideJobs.io. Again, that is Upside, U-P-S-I-D-E, UpsideJobs.io. And if you hire from there, let them know that I sent you. Okay, on this topic of recruiting and getting the right people, again, Steve just believed in letting them work in large part. He talked about talking with this guy from Disney University that Walt Disney himself hired. And this guy introduced him to something called management by values. So he said, quote, he called it management by values. What that means is you find people that want the same things that you want, and then you just get the hell out of their way. And that's one of my mantras around Apple and Pixar that recruiting is the most important thing you do. Finding the right people, that's half the battle. And so I guess you can add to that, it's finding the right people who have the same values, who want the same things that you want, because obviously that's an important component because they can be really smart. If they don't want what you want, if if you're not aligned in vision, then it's still gonna create conflict. But okay, so let's move on to the second of those three things. So first is recruiting, second is setting a vision. And for setting a vision, one of the important things for Steve was centralization. That's not how he necessarily phrased it, but it's something that you see over and over again. So he said, quote, you work for Apple first and your boss second. We feel very strongly about that. And so at Apple, the results were somewhat democratized. The process was democratized. There's a lot of input from a lot of of different people, but the vision never was, okay? The vision came from the top and it always came from Steve. And I think that's an important component of the way that he worked. I think the temptation sometimes is there to be democratic in all elements of the business, Um, but you can't let that extend to vision. There has to be a singular vision. You have a lot of smart people doing their own thing, figuring out their own way to get to that vision, but you work for Apple first and your boss second. The loyalty goes back to Apple. The vision goes back to Apple and to Steve Jobs and to whoever's at the top. And so I think that's an important distinction. Also on the topic of vision, it's really interesting to see a memo that he sent out just a month after he came back to Apple the second time. It was a really bad state. It was on life support. The company was about to fail. And so he gets in there and this is the memo he sends a month later. He says, quote, renewing Apple is a journey. And we have begun that journey during the past four weeks by taking some decisive first steps a new board of directors, a new product strategy and product roadmap, a decision to really focus on two market segments, education and creative content, a new advertising agency, and a detente and working partnership with Microsoft. 
Last week, we announced some of these steps at Macworld. And so far, our shareholders and the public seem to approve. So you can see in there, like all of the elements of great leadership. He comes in, he works really quickly. He gets a lot done. He gets the right people. So a new board of directors is, is one of the first things, get the right people in there. A new product strategy and product roadmap. A decision to really focus on two market segments, education, creative content. So there he's honing the vision and bringing in a new advertising agency to help hone that vision. So vision is something that is really important, shouldn't take a long time and you can get to really quickly and need to stay focused on. And then you get to that third part that he talked about, which is cajoling, persuading and inspiring people to do great work. And it's really interesting to me how he did this because it really surprised me. So it has some of the memos that he sent where he has uh, goals and benchmarks for his team. So I want to read you one from Pixar because I found this so interesting. It's totally counterintuitive to what I would have thought. To start off with, try and get in your mind what you think this will look like. Okay. This is the goals. This is the goals. The, the milestones is, is what he calls them. What the milestones would be for Pixar. If you're Steve Jobs leading the company. Okay. Think about that for a second. Uh, okay. Here they are. And he's giving everyone grades. Okay. So this is reflecting back on the milestones for 1997. And so he, he's reflecting back and giving grades for all these milestones. Okay. So first one, make a bug's life. Great. A ship two strong interactive products F, but a for getting out of the business, enter the sequel business, a green light film. Number three. F, but B for great progress. Manage growth. A, we hired over 100 people, built Pixar U, and expanded infrastructure. Keep a larger percentage of the profits. A, increase Pixar's brand awareness. B, but mostly due to Apple goings on. Let's set our 1998 milestone goals soon after the holidays. Okay, these are amazing to me because they're almost shockingly vague, right? You would think that there would be some metrics attached some direct accountability in terms of how they're reviewed some of these films or how much revenue they do or how much exposure they get, where they end up in the box office. But he doesn't do any of that. He's literally setting goals, make a bug's life great. And then he scores it on A to F. And I think when you hire amazing people, that's what you can do. You don't have to waste all this time going, all right, we're going to get, you know, these really detailed metrics around what makes a great movie and we're going to optimize for certain scores by certain critics. We're going to have certain revenue goals. Like, no, these are great filmmakers. So we're going to tell them, make it great. And I'm going to keep you accountable. We're going to review at the end of the year, but I watched it. You watched it. We all know it's a great movie. You get an A it's that simple. Um, if you go to his 1998 milestones for Pixar, I'll just read you the first three. He says, a Bug's Life opens in November to very strong, critical, and box office success. Okay, so we want it to be successful critically and to sell a lot of tickets. Number two, PR efforts yield Pixar branding and creative credit for A Bug's Life. And number three, Toy Story 2 becomes a great feature film. So think about it if you're a marketer. Instead of the owner of your company breathing down your neck in terms of, well, what are you really doing? What's the Q score for our company? You know, we're going to do a survey to see what Pixar's brand awareness is before this initiative and after. No, you've just got this owner who trusts you, who says, look, your goal is to make sure that Pixar 
gets branding and creative credit for a bug's life. Okay. I guess that's more PR. That's probably a PR professional who's doing that. But you know what that means. You're supposed to be great at PR. He knows what that means. And so he's not getting bogged down in all these little details. He's setting these very general goals and keeping it simple and making sure that people are accountable to those very general goals. So I thought that was a very interesting way to lead and not at all what I expected. I expected that he would have said, we want to do $100 million in 1998. Oh, we want to sell these many tickets. We want to be the top of the box office. We want, I thought it would have been much more metrics driven, but no, and I, I think his approach is probably right. I think that's much more effective. So other things that made him a very effective leader, one thing that he talked about was culture and what it is that drive cultures. So listen to this quote. He said, in the end, it's the work that binds. That's why it's important to pick very important things to do because it's very hard to get people motivated to make a breakfast cereal. It takes something that's worth doing. And so that is how Steve Jobs established culture, essentially, was we're going to have a culture of work of making great products. That's what binds. That's what makes the culture. So the culture is not everything that goes around it. Culture is the work. There's this great quote from the book Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And he says that companies don't have cultures. Companies are cultures. And I think Steve Jobs got that. You know, we don't have a culture is not ping pong tables and beanbag chairs and the things that go around work. Culture is the work. It's work that drives the culture. And you see that at Apple and at Pixar. The culture was driven by the fact that people loved creating great products and great movies. And everything else came from that. It wasn't something that was built around that. One of the other things I put in leadership, (laughs) I think is so funny, is he's asked during an interview, someone says, what do you think your weaknesses are when it comes to management? And here's what he says. This is the funniest response I've ever heard. He says, I don't know. People are package deals. You take the good with the confused. In most cases, strengths and weaknesses are two sides of the same coin. A strength in one situation is a weakness in another. Yet often the person can't switch gears. It's a very subtle thing to talk about strengths and weaknesses because almost always they're the same thing. My strength probably is that I've always viewed technology from a liberal arts perspective, from a human culture perspective. As such, I've always pushed for things that pull technology in those directions by bringing insights from other fields. So, so I don't know if you caught that, but they say, what's your greatest weakness when it comes to management? He says, I don't know. Strengths and weaknesses are basically flip sides of the same coin. So here are some of my strengths. <laughs> like just a, a genuinely, like he was a great leader and I have loved reading even more about him, but it's genuinely like a little bit sociopathic for someone to ask you what your weakness is and to say, my weaknesses are basically my strengths. So here are my strengths. And he had this pattern of not being very self-reflective at all. You can tell that he just thinks it's like a little, it's wasteful. It's almost masturbatory to talk about, oh, what makes me a good or a bad leader? He's just thinking about how to get things done. Uh, There's someone asks him a similar question and they say, you've talked about being tough to get along with, having a rough edge personality. Did you contribute in some way to your own downfall? He responds. And so this question comes, you know, after just after he's left Apple and he says, I'm not a 62 year old statesman that traveled around the world all his life. So I'm sure that there was a situation when I was 25 that I could go back knowing what I know now and I could have handled much better, but I'm sure I'll be able to say the same thing when I'm 35 about the situation in 1985. I can be very intense in my convictions and I don't know all in all, I kind of like myself and I'm not anxious to change. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, that's like kind of the same answer of just, 
you know, when people ask him about his weaknesses, he just says, I don't know, I guess I'm me. And uh, you take the good with the bad and you get the whole package. And obviously he learned and improved over time. But the point is he didn't waste time thinking about himself. If he learned and improved, it's only because he wanted to do better work and make better products. And so I think there's a lot of people who love Myers-Briggs and who love all these personality tests and strengths finders. And I just don't see great leaders really caring about that kind of stuff. Uh, They're not very introspective. They just think more about the work than they think about themselves. Some other interesting things about leadership. He has a very funny quote about Pixar because the early going at Pixar was really rough. They're trying to build this hardware and it does not work. That business essentially fails and it's a miracle that they become a successful film studio after failing as a hardware business. And he says about those early days, the leadership team would all get depressed, but not all of us at once. He says that was the secret to their success. And I think that's a a reason why teams can be important. Startups always go through hard times. I can't think of a single startup that didn't come within a hair's breadth of collapsing at one point or another, or at least go through some really harrowing, uh, difficult times. And so that's, you know, teams can help you because certain people are going to take that harder at different times. And so to have someone who's not depressed when you are, who can see the light, who can see the vision when you can't and vice versa, I think is a underrated part of founding teams on leadership. One other thing going a little bit back to setting that vision. One of the things that he set vision on was aesthetic design. And he had this great aesthetic judgment. And so one interviewer asked him, how do you have such great taste? They asked him. And he said, quote, I don't think my taste in aesthetics is that much different than a lot of other people's. The difference is that I just get to be really stubborn about making things as good as we all know they can be. That's the only difference. And the interviewer says, I think you're just being modest. And he responds, well, things get more refined as you make mistakes. I've had a chance to make a lot of mistakes. Your aesthetics get better as you make mistakes. But the real big thing is if you're going to make something, it doesn't take any more energy and rarely does it take more money to make it really great. All it takes is a little more time, not that much more, and a willingness to do so. A willingness to persevere until it's really great. And I think maybe he was still being modest, but I think that's essentially correct. That the reason that Apple products are known as some of the greatest, most well-designed products of all time, some of them are just beautiful. You know, you look at that original iMac with the translucent back, and I loved the way that looked at the time. I still love the way it looks. Or you think about the original iPod, the original iPhone. Actually, my favorite, the product I think is the most well-designed Apple product of all time is the original iPod Nano. When you held that thing, especially the black one, just beautiful, just beautiful. And what he's saying is, I didn't have any special taste. There's nothing I saw that no one else saw. My aesthetic taste is essentially the same as everyone else. I was just really stubborn. And I just wouldn't stop until it was incredible. It's those iterations. We just keep making mistakes. We keep trying until something really great comes out. And on a certain level, I do think that's true that you can brute force your way to great taste and great aesthetics by just trying and trying things until you find what works and then sticking with that. A few other sections I really love for this. I've heard the saying, and you probably heard it as well, of strong opinions loosely held. So the idea is when you come to a new topic, 
You should form an opinion relatively quickly and a, a relatively strong opinion, but you should hold it loosely. That way it engenders conviction, um, but also gives you the ability to, to change your mind. And you can see that with Steve. That was him to a T. He had strong opinions loosely held. So he had very strong opinions and he was going to fight for them. And he was going to convince you that he was right if he was. But if you could convince him that you were right, then he would switch on a dime and change his opinion. So there's one story about this that I found actually kind of touching. An Intel engineer emails him and says, hey, I heard you'd be willing to talk to us about graphics chips. Can I pick your brain sometime? And as background, Steve was very good friends with the CEO of Intel. His name was Andy Grove, very, very famous Silicon Valley entrepreneur. And so this this engineer, they're just called Engineer A in the book, he emails him and says, hey, I want to talk to you about this graphics chip. Can I pick your brain sometime? And Steve responds, these are industry secrets. Quote, what does Intel propose to give Pixar for disclosing and licensing its secrets to Intel? And the engineer is like, nothing. My CEO, Andy Grove, told me that you'd be willing to talk and help us out. Maybe there's some disconnect here. And Steve takes that email and forwards it to Andy Grove and says, hey, I really don't like your engineer's attitude. Can you believe this guy? And look, I think Steve was really stressed. This is the mid-90s. I don't think Toy Story has come out yet. So Pixar is still floundering. Next is also not doing well. I don't think they've been bought by Apple yet. It's like a really precarious time for Steve Jobs. And so he's trying to pump this guy for money. Like, yeah, I'll help you out with graphics chips because I've developed some expertise while working with Next but you're going to have to give me some money, a consulting fee or something like that. And so when he sends this to Andy Grove and says, can you believe your engineer? Andy responds, Steve, I'm firmly on the engineer's side. He's taking your offer to help us very seriously, rounded up the best technical people and was ready to go. When you introduced a brand new element into the discussion, money, you and I have talked many times about this subject. You never suggested or hinted at this being a commercial exchange. I took your offer to help us exactly as that, help, not an offer of a commercial relationship. You may remember that from time to time, I offered suggestions that pertained to your business. Examples range from porting Next Step to the 486, which was in our interest, to my presentation to your staff on repositioning Next Step beyond that. I am not suggesting that these are comparable in value to your expertise in graphics, but I gave what I had put some thought into the problem I saw you were facing, and it never entered my mind to charge you for it. In my view, that's what friendly companies and friends do for each other. In the long run, these things balance out. I am sorry you don't feel that way. We will be worse off as a result, and so will the industry. Regards, Andy. So pretty biting response, and Steve responds, <laughs> after having been really nasty to this engineer for a few emails, Steve responds, Andy, I have many faults, but one of them is not ingratitude. And I do agree with you that in the long run, these things will balance out. Therefore, I have changed my position 180 degrees. We will freely help your engineer make his processors much better for 3D graphics. Please ask him to call me and we'll arrange for a meeting as soon as the appropriate Pixar technical folks can be freed up. Thanks for the clearer perspective, Steve. And so I think it's pretty amazing to see how that worked for Steve. He just goes really hard in one direction. And when someone convinces him, he just says, all right, I changed my position 180 degrees. And I think it's really difficult to have that mental flexibility 
and to have I think it's weird to call Steve Jobs humble because I'm not sure that he was what most people mean when they say humble but it's difficult to have that humility to just say all right that was my old position I'm abandoning it I'm taking completely the opposite perspective but I think it really helped him have the flexibility that he needed to be a great leader and that was an impactful story to me Speaking of flexibility, one of the other things that I thought was interesting is one of the few places where he said he coached himself, okay? I think Steve was someone who really liked to act on instinct, on intuition. In fact, that's something he talked about. I'll bring up a quote later where he talked about intuition. He loved to follow his intuition. So there are very few things where he really coached himself, where he deliberately tried to not follow his gut feeling. There was one place where he was, and this is what he said. One of the things I always tried to coach myself on was not being afraid to fail. When you have something that doesn't work out, a lot of times people's reaction is to get very protective about never wanting to fall on their face again. I think that's a big mistake because you never achieve what you want without falling on your face a few times in the process of getting there. I've tried to not be afraid to fail. And as a matter of fact, I've failed quite a bit since leaving Apple. And so I think that's interesting. And what it tells me is just... This is something that doesn't come naturally to anyone. It is in everyone's natural instincts anytime you fail to clam up and hunker down and take the safe route next time and take fewer risks in the future. And so I think if Steve Jobs, who had this unbelievable confidence, if he had to coach himself on not being afraid to fail in the future after having a couple failures early on, I think everyone else needs to do that as well. And it's tough. It's tough. Of course, it's tough. And I've been there. It's really hard in the moment. But this was a good reminder to me that when you've had a failure, that's the time to take a moment out, coach yourself, really think it through, get grounded and say, okay, I'm not going to let this affect me the wrong way. And I'm going to continue to take appropriate smart risks in the future, even, even though maybe I've fallen on my face a couple times. Okay, here's another great quote that I really love. He says, there's a big problem with this notion that your work is different and separate from the rest of your life. If you are passionate about your life and your work, this can't be so. They'll become more or less one. This is a much better way to live one's life. And he's got a similar quote later. He says, I've never been able to think of my work and my life as different things. They're the same thing. Make what you love your work. And I really love that. It reminds me of Leonardo da Vinci. If you listen to that series, I said that I thought the differentiator between him and other artists was how much he loved what he was working on. And I think you can feel that same thing about Steve. There's a stronger emotion there, a greater love for product than anyone else of his generation. And of course, if you've got this love for your product, how can that be separate from your life? And so that's something I took away from this is great entrepreneurs don't separate their personal and their professional life. And it's doing a disservice to both if if you do that. Okay, next thing, there's a great picture in this book. There's a lot of great pictures in this book. But one I love is very simple. It's just a picture of a slide ruler. And a lot of people, you listening to this probably don't know what a slide ruler is. I mean, I, I never used a slide ruler growing up. It's essentially a manual calculator. It was the ruler that had this slide on it that allow you to do some basic calculations. So the caption says, Steve's slide ruler. He was born before the electric calculator. And so it's crazy to me to think how much changed during his lifetime, that this was someone who, when he was born, 
there were no electronic calculators. Like he didn't have a basic electronic calculator starting out in school. He had to use an actual slide ruler. And then he introduced the iPhone to the world. It, to me, just put into perspective how large his contribution was to the world. That, of course, it, it was not just Steve Jobs that took us from the slide ruler to, to the iPhone, but he was a huge part of it. And he was one of the key figures in that transformation of technology over that time period. Okay, the last section I have titled Zen Steve. So this is some of his philosophical musings. So one is he's at a high school graduation giving a speech. And he talks about how to get in touch with your intuition. He says, a good way to remember these kinds of intuitive feelings is to walk alone near sunset and spend a lot of time looking at the sky in general. We are never taught to listen to our intuitions, to develop and nurture our intuitions. But if you do pay attention to these subtle insights, you can make them come true. I think that's a weirdly specific observation, one I haven't tested out yet, but to spend time near sunset and spend a lot of time looking at the sky in general as a way to get in touch with your intuition. But coming from someone who was more in touch with his intuition than anyone else I know, I think I'll take his word for it. And that's something that I'm interested to experiment with. And when it comes to intuition, he gives a story. He says, much of what I stumbled into by following my curiosity and intuition turned out to be priceless later on. And he talks about the first time that he met his, what would become his wife, Laureen. Um, he was giving a lecture at a class in Stanford and he gives this lecture. He notices her and uh, he's talking to people after he's done giving the lecture and he notices she's gone. So he runs out to the parking lot. He decides he wants to talk to her and he finds her. She's getting in her car and he says, Hey, you know, whatever I saw you, uh, I want to take you out. Can I take you out? And uh, she says, yes. And he says, great. We'll, we'll go out Saturday night. And then he goes back to his car and he's got a sales meeting later that night with some really important customers for Apple. So that's where he's going to go. And he thinks to himself, do I really want to go to the sales meeting or do I want to go to dinner with that girl tonight instead of Saturday? So he runs back to her car right as she's about to drive off. He says, actually, forget Saturday. Do you want to get dinner tonight? And she says, yes. And they end up married shortly thereafter. And he says about this, yeah, it might have worked out if I had waited until Saturday night. And those customers might have given us a few more orders if I had shown up. But who knows? Maybe she had a hot date Friday night and things would have turned out much differently. You can't plan to meet the people who will change your life. It just happens. Maybe it's random. Maybe it's fate. Either way, you can't plan for it. But you want to recognize it when it happens and have the courage and clarity of mind to grab onto it. And Steve is clearly someone who believed in this sort of serendipity. He talks about connecting the dots, looking backwards and putting yourself in touch with your intuition in order to tap into and find that serendipity. And I think it's interesting what he identifies as key, that you have to have courage and clarity of mind to grab onto those intuitions. I think that's important. Have courage, have clarity of mind, you know, know what you want and be willing to go after it. Even if it's maybe embarrassing, you just told the girl, Hey, I'll see you Saturday. It takes a little courage to go back up and say, actually, how about tonight? But yeah, I think Steve's right. That's important. So on the topic of Zen Steve, I have one more quote. This is the one I'll finish with. And it's about death, about life and death. And honestly, 
reading this book, dipping back into the life of Steve Jobs, kind of bummed me out again. (laughs) It made me a little bit sad because this is someone who was important in my lifetime. I loved watching his speeches. I liked Apple products. I still like Apple products. And I liked following him. And he died when I was in my early 20s. And I think tragedy is the loss of something great and something beautiful. And so the greatest lives are always the most tragic. And Steve also had this kind of belief about tragedy that contemplating death could help you live a better life. And so I wanted to, to leave you with this thought that he had about death and life and their relationship. He said, think of your life as a rainbow arcing across the horizon of this world. You appear, have a chance to blaze in the sky, then you disappear. The two endpoints of everyone's rainbow are birth and death. Most people have not thought about these events very much. That is birth and death. And it's as if we shelter from them, afraid that the thought of mortality will somehow wound us. For me, it's the opposite. To know my ark will fall makes me want to blaze while I am in the sky. Not for others, but for myself. For the trail I know I am leaving. Thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Wilson Tweets. Follow me on Instagram at HTTOTW or learn more about the podcast at HTTOTW.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.